encourage you to do is, uh, you know, Jesus, Jesus actually said nobody can follow him, nobody can come to him unless God draws them. So I talked about the first week how Matthew, who was unlikely candidate to follow Jesus because he was a tax collector and just all that. So I've encouraged you to think of two people uh, in your life that you could pray for that God would draw them. So I'm not challenging you to have a conversation with them or give them a tract or anything. Just pray that God would draw them to Jesus. So, uh, and I have these, I have some more of these cards, and I, whenever I see it in my house or I have it by my Bible in the morning, it just reminds me to pray for the two people I've thought about. So, but I thought, let's just, so I want you to close your eyes right now, and I want you to think of two people um, that you, that you uh, would say, I want to pray that God would draw them to Jesus. You, you may think they are totally unlikely to ever follow Jesus. And then in a second, I'm just going to ask you just uh, um, kind of a, a loud whisper, out loud whisper for you to hear, just their first initials. So if your person is John and Bob, you say J and B, all right? And God can fill in the blanks. He knows who you're talking about, all right? But I, let's just say we're praying for them in that way because we are. So think of two people. Um, first initials of their first name and just say blank and blank, all right? Um, so God, we're going to ask you to draw these people to you. And so now say, to your, say the initials, ready, go. Uh, so God, you know how to fill in the blanks of those names and um, you know they have stories and you brought them to mind to us, I think, because we, you know we care about them. And you also know that we don't, for some of these people we've mentioned, we have no idea how they would ever end up following Jesus because we just don't see it happening. But that was true of Matthew. That was true of the Apostle Paul. So nothing's beyond you. So God, I pray that you would draw these people to yourself, these individuals that we know and we care about and we might see on a regular basis, um, that you would do something, be moving in their heart, and we want to be ready that if there's a conversation to be had and it's obvious that you're drawing us into the conversation, that we want to be ready for that. But, of course, we don't want to force anything or pressure anything. We just want to be ready because you're the one that has to do the work, God. And we'll be ready to be a part of that. But we just pray that you would draw people to you. I mean, we ask this in your name. Amen. Um, so, uh, go to this... There's a book written in 1936, and you've heard about it. I don't know if anybody's actually read it. We've all kind of heard parts of it. It's called How to, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale, Dale Carnegie. It's 36 million books have been sold around the world. It's apparently a must-read book for business people or salesmen or things like that. But I'm going to give you some of the pieces of advice that Mr. Carnegie gives for how to win friends and influence people. All right? First is this. Uh, Begin in a friendly way and smile. Number two, don't criticize. Number three, give honest, sincere appreciation. Again, this is if you're trying to win friends and influence people. Number four, make the other person feel important. Number five, throw down a challenge. Now, the next list from the same book is how to, how to change people, how to get them to change without offending them or arousing their resentment. All right? Number one, call attention to mistakes indirectly. Number two, let the other man save face or woman. Number three, praise the slightest improvement. 
Some of you parents are probably thinking about your young children. That doesn't work. No, this works anyway. But number four, use encouragement. Number five, make the fault seem easy to correct. John the Baptist did not read this book. All right? John the Baptist uh, would be a foreigner to this book. He broke the rules. Uh, we're going to be looking today at, at, at introducing John the Baptist from the Gospel of Matthew. But uh, when it comes to winning friends and influencing people, at least in that context, John the Baptist, and we're also going to see Jesus, um, doesn't abide by this. And so what does that, what, what does that say for us? How, how are we supposed to interact with people and things like that? So I've been doing a series, and I'm, I have my little sign over here, Follow Jesus. It's the Gospel of Matthew. There's no one like him. Matthew is always trying to show us not only did Jesus have this lineage from the Old Testament where both Mary and Joseph have ties to uh, King David, and he's the king, he's the rightful Messiah, but he also points in all kinds of other ways. Like I said, I've had one of those big, uh, I've seen one of those progressive commercials a bunch on TV this week, the guy with the arrow. Matthew has the arrow, and he's always, he's always pointing to this sign. There's nobody like him. There's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like him. He uses all kinds of Old Testament quotes to show these Jewish religious people Okay, this, he is the one. He's the one. He's the one. He's always doing that. And Matthew, being a tax collector, probably with an equivalent of like accounting skills, was just, he was always details. This is it. He's the one. He's the one. He's the one. So we did Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 3, we're introduced to this character named John the Baptist, who, if you remember, was Jesus's cousin. Um, Elizabeth was his mother. Actually, it was uh, what, second cousin, I guess, because his mom married for natural pregnancy, but to Elizabeth. Elizabeth had John the Baptist. It, was a, it wasn't a supernatural pregnancy, but it wasn't the fact that Elizabeth was old, but it wasn't a, like a virgin pregnancy like Mary. But So John the Baptist was destined from birth to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Matthew introduces John to the, to the reader. So again, Matthew wrote this probably 20 to 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, but there are still Jewish religious people who are still trying to figure out who, what about, is he the right one? Was he the one? What do we do? So after he's introduced the Old Testament lineage and ancestry of Jesus and things, now he starts to tell us about John the Baptist. And then it kind of morphs into Jesus. But let's just read this. Uh, so this is the very beginning of chapter 3. All right. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness. So... Matthew 2 was the birth story of Jesus. Boom, in chapter 3, Jesus is now like 20, late 20-something. 20 so Matthew, and actually most of Scripture doesn't tell us much of what happened between Jesus being 2 years old and 29 or whatever. So chapter 2 was the Christmas story. Now we're boom, John the Baptist. Um, in those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, and again, Matthew was like obsessed with showing Old Testament prophecies. So he's taking from Isaiah, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. Next one. Uh, and actually, go back to the clear the road for him. Whenever a king or a dignitary would be coming, say, like to Jerusalem. 
or for that matter, whenever they had a Jewish religious festival, Passover or whatever, that's when they would fix the roads to make sure anybody from far off could get there, especially the king would have a smooth ride, all right? Um, there's a really nasty pothole on Snotty Road where we drive sometimes, and uh, you've probably had nasty, we could all do nasty pothole stories. But the essential of this is, sense was fix every road. If there's things in the way, smooth it out, straighten it out. Get it ready so the king can get there quickly and smoothly without interruption, without hindrance. All right? So that was the message. That The Im- imagery there is that's John's job. His job is to make sure that when Jesus comes on the scene, he can be received well and welcomed by people. Not unlike even us today, the hat, you know, we, we want to receive Jesus and welcome Jesus and his work in our life without hindrance. So John's job was to do the preparation, all right? Now, now the next slide. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist for food he ate locusts and wild honey. So there's an imagery there. Every Jewish person would know this. There's a, there's a mere image to the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament because they were all Jewish, good Jewish people knew the prophet Elijah would come back someday. And so some of this imagery of the coarse camel hair, leather belt, the average Jewish reader would think, oh, there's a connection to Elijah here. This, this is another fulfillment. And Matthew was obsessed with that word fulfillment. This is what the Bible said would happen. This is what's happening. This is what the Bible said would happen. This is what's happening. Leather belt around his waist for he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem... And from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. So baptism in, those, in that era was typical if you were a proselyte, if you were a convert to Judaism, if you were a pagan and you wanted to become a Jew, you'd get baptized. This is the first instance in the Bible, first instance in history speaking, where Jews would get baptized because they wanted to... They wanted a new understanding of what it meant to know God. So this is like, almost like the Christian baptism today. It's a, I want to show that I'm turning away from my sin to becoming a new person. So this wasn't just a convert thing. It was a change of lifestyle thing. All right? But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. We're going to stop there for a second. So... The Pharisees and Sadducees were the religious leaders, religious teachers, um, and I'm using the word religious on purpose because they embodied the spirit of religion, and I'm using this in a negative term now, because they cared way more about their image than they did about the reality, all right? Image management is the, is the best word to use to describe the majority of Pharisees and Sadducees. They were obsessed with adhering to the law. And they were obsessed with their image. The term we hear today might be is a virtue signaling. I want people to know how righteous I am. I want people to know how holy I am. Um, when I was, I had a chance, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, to go to Israel on a, on a trip with a, with a tour group and a pastor. And on the flight there, it was a, uh, it was a, what's the Israeli airline? El Al or whatever, it was one of their airlines. And there was a, what I would think would be kind of a modern day Pharisee, I mean in terms of 
on the plane, and every, even if the seatbelt light was on, if it was time for him to go back and pray, he went to the back of the plane, he had all this fancy garb on, and he was praying, and the, the, the stewardesses didn't say a word to him. Because, and and <laughs> when we were at the hotel on the Sabbath day, because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, all the elevator buttons were on. So if you had to go to the ninth floor, you had to stop at every floor on the way up because they didn't want you to touch the button because they didn't want you to work. So it was that even now they have, there's this kind of weird obsession with, and the coffee machine, the coffee was already made because they didn't want you to press the button, the coffee would come out because that's work. So you can see this weird obsession with we have to, we have to look right. We have to, it's all about our image. And they were constantly... Uh, burdening the people with all these new laws and new rules, and they were the experts in the law, but they were also the experts in looking good. And I'm saying that because I think if we're honest, if I'm honest, we all have a, we all have a little image management in us. We all want to make sure people perceive us as maybe even being more spiritual than we are. But I'm just saying, just don't, I'm not throwing, let's not just throw the Pharisees under the bus without realizing, okay, we, have, we can be that way, and we don't want to be that way. So, but John sees them and he says he denounces them. And here's his statement of denouncing, all right? You brood of snakes. I mean, totally failed in winning friends and influencing people, right? You brood of snakes. And he goes on in this, in this particular passage. I'm going to leave this brood of snakes up there because he talks about who, you brood of snakes. Who, who warned you to flee from the upcoming wrath? And the image were like these snakes who are going away from a fire. You snakes. Again, think about, let's say the Pharisees and Sadducees are over here and John's over there. When he says that, you, you could probably physically see them all kind of clinch, like, ugh, you brood of snakes. And then he, he talks about brood of snakes, then he, then he calls them uh, fruitless trees. You know, if a tree doesn't, he's over here yelling at him. if a tree doesn't bear fruit, we cut it down and put it in the fire. And he says, you guys are fruitless trees. Then he calls them stones, basically saying, you think you're children of Abraham? God can make these stones children of Abraham. That's not a, in other words, you think you grew up in a religious home? You're a Jew, you have Jewish ancestry, you have Baptist ancestry, Methodist, whatever. John's like, God doesn't care. He can make, he can make, Jew, he can make people, he can make children of Abraham out of these stones if he wants to. Then his last statement toward them as he's kind of winning friends and influencing people he says there's, God is ready to harvest the wheat. And uh, I had to learn about this because I didn't understand how it works. But when they harvest wheat, in the old days, they would have this big fork. And they'd flip it in the air. And they'd want the, the wheat berries on the end to kind of separate from the shaft, which is like the straw pieces or whatever. And they would constantly, because the weight of the wheat berry would fall down and the shaft would blow away. And then John says to them, God's ready to separate the wheat from the chaff. And he basically says, you're the chaff, and what do we do with the chaff? We burn it. So John's pretty, brood of snakes, you're fruitless trees, you, you're chaff, you're going to be, I mean, and I think, and maybe you think this too, if I'm a friend of John the Baptist or a disciple, I might think, Tone it down a little bit, John. You're not going to get anywhere with them. But it's, it's pretty, you brood of snakes. 
So when you read this, first impression, you're like, wow. It's kind of like Jesus sent a bulldozer out in front of him to clear the way. Good thing Jesus had John do his dirty, dirty work. However, nine chapters later, Jesus calls these same brood people, you brood of snakes. All right, Matthew chapter 12, you brood of snakes. Jesus didn't read the Carnegie book either. In this particular situation, Jesus had just healed a man's hand that was deformed, but he did it on the Sabbath. And this is the passage that, if, if, when you read, the, if you have a chance to read the end of chapter 12, it just blows me away. He healed the man on the The Pharisees were watching him to see if Jesus would heal this guy's hand on the Sabbath. Jesus heals it. The very next verses, the Pharisees now were meeting to decide how to kill Jesus. And it wasn't because he healed the hand on the Sabbath. It was because he was, he was making them look bad by breaking the laws they thought were so... And, and so they, they do that. And then, right following, he, after he heals them, he, he, uh, there's a man that has a demonic spirit, and Jesus casts out the demon. So the Pharisees are upset twice now. Now it's not John the Baptist over there, it's Jesus, and the Pharisees and Sadducees are over here. They're upset twice now because not only did he, he heal a man on the Sabbath, but now he cast out a demon, and they're thinking, wow, we, what do we do with that? Because that's kind of a powerful thing, and how do we explain that away? Because we can't do that. So then their answer is, well, of course he can cast out demons. He's, the, he's in cahoots with the prince of demons, and that way he can kick out the demons himself. And that's where the famous line that Jesus stole from Abraham Lincoln, the other way around, house divided itself can't stand. Actually, I was at Ivy Tech one time, and they had a quote, house divided itself can't stand Abraham Lincoln. And I, I wanted to tell somebody, he's not the original one who said that. It was Jesus. All right? But they're saying, well, he's, he's casting out demons because he's in cahoots with the prince of demons. And Jesus is like, well, House divided against itself can't stand, so why would, I, why, would, why would Satan kick out Satan? So they're having this back and forth, and then Jesus goes on this kind of, like you call it a rant with them. I'm, not, I'm going to say rant, but I'm going to say he does a rant without sinning like we can rant when we start hurting people. And he basically says, you, you brood of snakes. And again, you think... If I'm a disciple, if I'm Peter, James, or John, and you're standing with me and we're all disciples, and you might think, Jesus, could you say it differently? Because you're kind of, you're, you're not winning friends and influencing people. But, he, but Jesus, knows how to win, Jesus knows how to win the right kind of people and influence the right kind of people. But he calls them this brood of snakes. It's like, right? So not only does Jesus say this once, he says it again. Matthew chapter 23, you brood of snakes. This situation, and this is even like strategically you think Jesus would think smarter, but of course he's always, his ways are higher than our ways. This was in like maybe two or three days before he was going to be arrested and crucified. So you would think, during the Jewish Passover, he might tread a little lightly, the disciples thought he should, because disciples would be like, well, you're not going to be arrested and killed. We don't want that to happen to you. So he was in Jerusalem. He had just been, 
And the, the chapter before this, this, when he calls them brood of vipers again, the, the, the Pharisees are like, it literally says they surrounded Jesus. So I don't know if they got in a circle. And, and they, were, they were pelting him with questions, hoping they could trip him up to so make him look bad. They'd ask him, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And that's when Jesus says, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, gives to God what belongs. And they ask him, well, what about the resurrection? Will there be a resurrection? Because the Pharisees thought there would be a physical resurrection. Sadducees thought there wouldn't be. And by asking the question, they thought Jesus would, it would be hostile to one of those two. They asked him another question about uh, what's the most important commandment. But literally it said they had surrounded Jesus to ask him these questions. But then after those questions were exhausted, Jesus says to them, okay, what do you guys, who is the Messiah then? And he talks about, you know, Messiah being the son of David and the, and the Pharisees don't answer him because they're stuck. Of course, Jesus has, in their understanding, Jesus has embarrassed them. Jesus has not allowed them to save face, as Del Carnegie would say so. Jesus has not been indirect in her accusations of them. You know, Del Carnegie pointed out their faults indirectly. Jesus is like, it's like a hammer on a cement block that needs to be broken open. Like, boom, boom. And then he goes on this multi-paragraph conversation where he says, you brood of snakes. <laughs> he calls them hypocrites, brood of snakes, whitewashed walls. I mean, he unloads every barrel at them. And that's where you might think, or I might think, okay, is there a better way? Because do you really want to alienate those people? But maybe God knows, maybe, of course he knows. He alienates the right kind of people because he knows he needs to get, it. the only way to break open their hearts is going to be with the hammer on the cement because he calls them hard-hearted. And I, I don't think this passage at all would tell us, okay, we need to start using this phrase, Bill, we know, that, aren't, that, you know, that don't follow Jesus. But let me, let me remind you, too, Jesus used this phrase exclusively. And his hard talks, whether it was brood of snakes, hypocrites, it was exclusively with those who thought they were religious. He didn't talk that way to people that were pagans or Gentiles or broken sinners or prostitutes or tax collectors. He didn't talk with that kind of harsh tone. He talked that way to those who embodied the spirit of religiosity, which was the spirit of image management, virtue signaling, look how good I am. So he didn't, he didn't use this toward broken people. He used this toward proud people. And he was, like I said, it's like a sledgehammer on a cement block. He's like, brood of snakes, you hypocrites. So yeah, John used it as a way to prepare the entry for Jesus to come in. Jesus had no problem using that phrase toward those who had hard hearts, proud hearts. So then, here's my one-line takeaway for today, all right? Jesus is courageous and loving enough to say to you whatever else won't say. And now, let's put ourselves over here in this crowd. I'm not saying you don't have the spirit of Jesus in you. I have the spirit of Jesus in me. I'm a, I'm a child of God, and so are you. But yet there's times where Jesus may need to say some hard things to us to the hard parts of our hearts. Um, 
I, th- I, was like, I was like 20 or 21, and I can't remember what we were doing or a conversation we were having with somebody, and it finally dawned on, on me that, oh, because I always used to read the Bible stories, and I was always on the side of Jesus and the disciples, and then I realized, oh, sometimes I need to be honest enough to see that I might have been in the Pharisee group there, because my image does matter, and I want people to think I'm a good person, and I do think I have a, you know, the right kind of pedigree or whatever, and so sometimes Jesus has to say things to us that way. Not, not because he's, I don't think Jesus would ever call us a brood of snakes. He's not going to call you a snake. But Jesus does say things that we're like, oh, I can't believe you said that to me. But he says things that need to be said. I've told stories before and I won't tell them. Times where my, my own arrogance, my own pride, that I clearly sense Jesus say back to me, put a spotlight on that and say, you got to deal with that. And my first response often to Jesus was, I can't believe you said that to me. Like, you know, oh, I'm so offended. But he has the courage to say those things to me because he loves me. And I'm 60 years old. Maybe there's more things he needs to say to me because he loves me. And he might say things to me that no one else even knows. Even my wife may not think there's, I mean, she, she may not think it's an issue, may think it is an issue, and she may be wishing God would say it. But, but there might be some times where God may say something to me that, not because I have a secret, but because he might say, you know, I want you to stop this. I want you to deal with this. You know, this way of living your life, this way of interacting with your wife, your kids, your, your friends, your neighbors, strangers, aliens, and orphans, that maybe there's something that there's, is a hard block in my heart that Jesus needs to, he's not going to take a popsicle stick and try to break the rock. He might have to take a hammer to break the rock because he loves me. Not because he's trying to hurt me. He's not going to, but um, Jesus is a master at being truthful, blunt, and disruptive. He's a master at that. And here's another question that one of my favorite authors wrote. He said, what would it be like to have someone in your life who knows you intimately, loves you unconditionally, and is willing to be completely honest with you. I mean, we, really, we all really want a friend like that. The completely honest with you part kind of bristles, we bristle a little bit, but if we acknowledge that he knows us intimately and he loves us unconditionally, I, in a sense it's kind of like that guy, just tell me what, tell me what you need to tell me. Because I trust you. I, I know you love me. I know you know me. So if you need to be honest with me about something in my life that needs to change so that I can be more filled with the spirit and life and power and joy and peace that come from God, then I, I could be macho and say, bring it on, God, bring it on. But that, none of us are that because we we're afraid for God to show us things. So in, in saying that, um, you know, my go to the next the slide, the one that says, yeah. so follow me, follow Jesus. So if you follow Jesus, and even with his disciples, and we'll see this some throughout the Gospel of Matthew, he had to rebuke them at times. These were his friends. These were the ones he was entrusting the world revolution to. He had to rebuke them for their pride of wanting to sit at the right and left-hand side, or when Peter said, oh, Jesus, you're not going to, this will never happen to you, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He rebukes them at times 
for a variety of things. So they were his friends. He knew them intimately. He loved them unconditionally. But he still had to be honest with them because he knew what they were going to be facing in the next phase of life where they would begin and blow up the whole world revolution because of the spirit of Jesus in them. And he knew they needed to be ready for that. Because he knew, not just ready for that, he knew that would be the only way they could be Matthew, Peter, James, John, if they wanted to be completely who God made them to be, they needed Jesus to be honest with them. Jesus wasn't going to say, well, you know, some of these disciples are a little bit arrogant about wanting to be, you know, right hand, left hand. I'm not going to tell them now. Wait for the right time. That's not Jesus. Or, yeah, Peter kind of thinks he's big stuff. He thinks he's never going to deny me, and I won't say that to him now. I mean, that's how we are with people. I'm not going to say that now. And then, yeah, there's timing issues. You don't always want to be, uh, I don't think Jesus was a bull in a china shop, although sometimes people experience him that way, and maybe he needs to be it sometimes. But maybe there's times where Jesus, if we follow Jesus, and there really is nobody like him, well, he's going to be honest with us. Don't, and we want that. We want that, we don't want that. We want that, we don't want that. It's kind of like we're schizophrenic about that. But if we, then if we truly believe that he loves us and he knows us, and his end goal for us, I'm moving toward the Pharisees, I need to move away from the Pharisees. His end goal for us is fully alive, fully, uh, full of his power, full of his life, full of irrational, supernatural joy, full of peace that doesn't make any sense because the world can't give it or take it away. If we want to be those kind of people, then we have to be open, and I would even say almost inviting to God's to the honesty of Jesus in our life. Psalm 1, uh, 139. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. That's a great it's a great prayer, but it's an incredibly fearful prayer because you're inviting God, okay, um, if, you need to bring, if you need to bring this spotlight into my heart, then search me, know me, try me, help me see the offensive ways in me, and then lead me in the everlasting, full of life, full of peace kind of way. Psalm, so it's, it's the end of Psalm 139, it's the beginning and the end of the psalm, both, that, that prayer is there. It, to me, is one of the most powerful but fearful prayers to pray. But if you ask that and God answers that, you will be in the most powerful place in your life that you've ever imagined because you'll have something inside of you, all the extra baggage that we call baggage that God calls sin is, is purged out of you and you have way more, the whole soul can be filled. And you don't have like these closet doors that are locked closed that God can't get into that can't be filled. So... Um, it, it, it's, it's, as much as it can sound like scary or morbid or heavy, it's like it's the most exciting place to be to follow Jesus and for him to care enough about you to call you out so you can be fully you. That's what we want. So let me pray. So Jesus, I, just, I uh, pray first of all for every single one of us that you would... Now, this week, tomorrow, you would confirm to us, confirm to each one of us how deeply and tenderly you love us. 
and that everything, um, everything you do in our lives is because you love us. You're not like a ruthless God. You're not like a vengeful God toward us. You're not tit for tat. You're not keeping score. You love us. And the Bible tells us that you, you're going to complete everything you started in us. But in that light, would you also uh, open our eyes to any places in our hearts that have maybe been crusted or hardened? And maybe we don't want to talk about it with you, but we do want to talk about it with you. And we're so ripped and torn about it, but we desperately want you in our lives. And if you need to come in with a, uh, a strong, honest, disruptive voice, um, we know that voice is also loving and tender and kind. And so we want to be, be fully alive. We want to be people that change the world, that change our homes, change our neighborhoods, change our community because your spirit is full in us. That's what we want. And so um, we follow you. And uh, we follow you without, we want to be able to say we follow you without reservations. So we, we want to be there. So we follow you. Uh, we love you. Because Jesus, there is absolutely nobody like you. No one that loves us like you do. Nobody. And uh, we ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.